Hello folks, and welcome back to Tink's Medieval Times. It's Crusades O'Clock, and at no point in this series so far has that title been more appropriate than now. For this is the episode where the main body of the First Crusade sets off. By the time we finish today, the Prince's Crusade will be ensconced deep in Muslim territory, and will have won its first victories against the Turkish Seljuk Sultanate of Rum. As you may remember from last time, this sits in stark contrast with the People's Crusade, which headed towards Jerusalem early in 1096. Having carved a journey, in many cases violently, and some unsuccessfully, through Hungary and Byzantium, forces under leaders such as Peter the Hermit and Walter of San Avoir crossed the Bosphorus and entered the lands of Kilik Arslan, the young Sultan of Rum. There, Unsupported by the later prince's expeditions, with limited food and divided leadership, the People's Crusade were slaughtered by the Turks. However, this success, rather than safeguarding the Sultan against future attack, actually made him more vulnerable. This was a vulnerability due to his own overconfidence. Thinking all future expeditions were likely to be as ineffective and disorganised as the People's Crusade, Kilik Arslan focused his attention and resources on his eastern border instead, especially the city of Melitene, disputed between him, his distant cousin Barkiaruk, the great Seljuk Sultan, and his eastern neighbour, the Emir Danishmend. Kilik Arslan's hubris was of course misplaced. The armies of the Prince's Crusade, it is true, were slower to assemble than those of the People's Crusade, but this is because their preparations were more comprehensive. Leaders such as Bohemond of Taranto, Godfrey de Bouillon and Raymond of Toulouse made sure that they had sufficient money, food and other supplies to cover the journey to Constantinople and beyond. They heeded the advice of Pope Urban II to wait until after harvest time before setting off. This decision was key to maintaining the cohesion of their forces allowing them to achieve far, far greater things than the People's Crusade had been able to do. A key player whose goodwill was vital to this successful passage of the Crusade was Alexius Komnenos. The Byzantine Emperor's patience had been sorely tested by the People's Crusade, who had caused significant damage within the Empire's borders and had achieved so little against the Muslims. A second piece of advice that the Pope had provided was that the leaders of the Crusade should rendezvous with the Byzantine Emperor. The key leaders of the Prince's Crusade took Urban at his word and headed for Constantinople to seek Alexius's counsel. There was some talk that the Emperor might even take direct command of the armies of the Crusade, something that one imagines filled the likes of Bohemond, Raymond and Godfrey with trepidation. The forces of the Prince's Crusade did not all travel together. This would have been impractical, since they were all travelling from different places and didn't wish to concentrate their forces in such a way that they would exhaust the areas they passed through of food. As the People's Crusade had proved, they also needed to be sympathetic to the populations of the Christian lands through which they passed, and sympathetic to their rulers. The first of the Crusade's leaders to arrive in Constantinople was Hugh of Vermandois. Hugh's presence on Crusade was in part to redeem the reputation of France's ruling Capetian dynasty, 
which had been well and truly sullied by the excommunicate Philip the Fat, the reigning king of France in 1096. Hugh, the French king's brother, certainly had a better reputation than Philip. Although his retinue was relatively small by the standards of the contingents of the prince's crusade who turned up after him. This presented the Emperor Alexius with something of a unique opportunity. The Byzantine Emperor had yet to work out or negotiate the exact relationship that he intended to have with the Crusaders, especially as and when they acquired any territory from the Muslim powers to his east. The People's Crusade had, of course, not made any permanent landed gains, and in any case Alexius had been reluctant to enter into arrangements with a host as chaotic as that one had been. The Prince's Crusade was evidently a more serious proposition, with a greater potential to reconquer the territory that Alexius needed back in his hands. Moreover, one of its most prestigious, but also materially weakest leaders, Count Hugh, had been the first to arrive on Alexius's doorstep. Constantinople's emperor knew he needed to frame the relationship between him, as overlord, and the crusading leaders in language that they would understand. His articulation, that Hugh would be his Anthropos Elysios, or liegeman, fitted the bill. Hugh, who got on well with the Byzantine emperor, seemed happy enough to sign up to Alexius's proposal. The emperor had one liegeman, and the promise of more, which encouraged his pretensions for imperial expansion. It also persuaded potential plotters, and there were probably many of these in Constantinople even as late as 1097, that to rise against the emperor at this stage was not a good idea. Not all of the leaders of the prince's crusade would be as amenable to Alexius's plans as Hugh of Vermandois had been, however. The next of the leaders to arrive was Godfrey de Bouillon, who reached Constantinople on the 23rd of December 1096. He was immediately less willing to participate in any taking of oaths, and have refused several of Alexius's invitations to enter the city. Things got ugly after the new year arrived. Godfrey's troops pillaged a Constantinopolitan suburb. They laid siege to the emperor's palace at the Blackenay. It was only after Alexius sent in his troops, which got the better of their skirmish with Godfrey's forces, that the wily old German leader settled and made his oath, which Alexius received from him on the 20th of January 1097. Largely, subsequent crusaders proved more cooperative than Godfrey had been. Count Robert of Flanders and Bohemond of Taranto, both of whom arrived in Constantinople in April 1097, made their oath to the emperor without complaint. From Bohemond, Alexius's former Bete Noir, such an amicable approach to the emperor was surprising. In the previous decade, Bohemond had accompanied his father, Robert Guiscard, on the spectacular campaign of conquest that had threatened Thessalonica, and even come close to the Byzantine capital. Bohemond was most likely being pragmatic here. His command of Greek made it easier for him to impress the emperor, who already had first-hand experience of Bohemond's military prowess. Perhaps Bohemond was even angling for Alexius's recognition as commander-in-chief of the expedition, an appointment which would in practice invalidate any earlier commitments made by Pope Urban II to Raymond of Toulouse. In the end, if this is what Bohemond was fishing for, 
he never received this title. But nonetheless, he maintained a good working relationship with Alexius until general relations between the Westerners and the Emperor and his forces unravelled in 1099. Like Hugh of Vermandois and Robert of Flanders, Bohemond appreciated the importance Alexius had in contributing to the success of the expedition. He had also seen Godfrey's belligerence get him nowhere. Conciliation was the path followed by the stragglers Stephen of Blois and Robert of Normandy, who arrived in Constantinople with their armies in May. Doubtless exhausted by their misguided detour through the malarial swamps of Roger Borsa's Duchy of Apulia, neither man had much inclination to put up resistance to Alexius's wishes. Raymond of Toulouse put up the most stubbornness in the face of Alexius's plans. The eldest among the Crusaders, and almost certainly the campaign's wealthiest participant, Raymond was the least reliant on the beneficence of the Byzantine Emperor. He was also suspicious of rumours that Alexius might seek to undermine his status as commander-in-chief of the expedition, as we have seen. Raymond made no attempt to keep his reluctance private. He declared, on hearing the Emperor's request for homage, that he had come only to serve God. His obstinance, of course, annoyed the Emperor, but it also irritated the other Crusader leaders, and not for the last time. Bohemond of Taranto angrily took the side of his former adversary Alexius against the Count of Toulouse. This intervention did little to further Bohemond's own position, or indeed to resolve the dispute. In the end, Alexius and Raymond were brought to a compromise on the 26th of April 1097. Raymond made a modified oath to respect the person and position of the Emperor, rather than any more concrete commitment as his colleagues had done. This was what Raymond was used to. For as Count of Toulouse, he had a similar, and if anything more distant, feudal relationship with his nominal overlord, the King of France. Shortly after this wrangling, Godfrey and Bohemond set out with their forces towards the Rum Sultanate's capital at Nicaea. The rest of the Crusaders soon followed. Like the People's Crusade, the first opponent in the face of the princes was Kilik Arslan, the young sultan of Rum. The circumstances of the crusaders' arrival, however, was somewhat different. Kilik Arslan was nowhere to be seen. Sure, he had left a garrison in his capital, with his wife and infant son, but the sultan was hundreds of miles away from Nicaea, advancing instead against the Armenian city of Melitene. Whether through faulty intelligence or hubris, or a combination of the two, Kilik Arslan had decided that the Crusaders were not his priority. He had assumed subsequent crusading missions would be of the ilk of the People's Crusade, clumsily led, ill-disciplined and easily outwitted. Therefore, Bohemond and Godfrey were able to invest Nicaea almost unopposed. When the other Crusaders joined them, the siege was well underway by the first week of May. It was not long before Kilik Arslan heard the bad news. The People's Crusade had been an aberration. This new campaign, consisting of tens of thousands of armed knights, was led by some of the greatest military commanders in Europe. It had laid siege to his capital, vastly outnumbered his garrison, and threatened to capture and potentially kill his young family. Hurriedly, 
Killer Karslan pulled his forces from Melatine, with the full cooperation of his rival for the city. His eastern neighbour Danishmend, Lord of Sivas, was a far-sighted leader, unusual among the Turkish princes of the late 1090s, for he had identified the crusade as a potential threat to his own lands. Kilik Arslan marched westwards before hooking round to approach his capital from the south. In normal circumstances, this was a far from foolish manoeuvre. Approaching the besiegers from this direction gave the Turks the element of surprise and the capacity to envelop and destroy a substantial chunk of the crusading force. However, the sheer size of the First Crusade, with their Byzantine mercenaries and auxiliaries in tow, caught Kilikarslan and his troops by surprise. The Sultan panicked and led a charge, but his advantage was quickly sapped away as the Crusaders' superior numbers and discipline told against his Turkish horsemen. Incarcerated in the very trap they had planned to spring themselves, hundreds of Turkish cavalrymen were killed. A terrified Kilik Arslan withdrew with the remainder. The Sultan's failure rendered the relief of his capital unfeasible, but did not mean an end to the siege. Nicaea was a tough nut to crack, and should have served as a warning to the Crusaders of the greater challenges that lay ahead. Kilik Arslan's garrison had inherited some of the Eastern Roman Empire's strongest defences, towers mounted with giant crossbows and skilled Turkish archers at every battlement. Even with tens of thousands of Crusaders surrounding the city on its three-walled sides, by the 3rd of June the garrison had refused to cede any ground whatsoever. One Turkish warrior allegedly fought to the death on the wall top, even having been pierced by 20 Christian arrows. The Crusaders could not afford to fall at this first hurdle. And they did not, though, tellingly, the weak point in Nicaea's defences was spotted and exploited not by a Crusader, but by Alexius's Byzantine soldiers. The Ascanian Lake, covering the western approaches to Nicaea, was more likely defended than the city's three-walled sides. Alexius's commanders, who may have had some foreknowledge of this fact, probed this weakness by means of ships filled with fighting men. These vessels crossed the lake and landed in the city. From here, the Byzantine attack proved to be a quick and relatively easy success. Kilikarslan's garrison quickly surrendered and were perhaps happier to do so in the knowledge that the Emperor and his troops would be occupying the city rather than the barbarous Latins and Crusaders. Alexius made sure that Kilikarslan's wife and child came into his hands. The Emperor conveyed them to Constantinople, where they were accorded full honours and sumptuous Byzantine hospitality. Here, Alexius kept a diplomatic channel open in the face of future potential challenges. The Siege of Nicaea, then, proved a great success for Alexius. It was his troops that entered and secured the city, ensuring minimised pillage and bloodshed. From that point, Nicaea returned to its prior status as the Eastern Roman Empire's principal urban centre in Asia Minor. Alexius, through safeguarding Kilikarslan's family, retained his diplomatic reputation. This would prove useful later, but in the short term, Kilikarslan's wife proved a great asset for Byzantine diplomacy as well. Accompanied by an escort, she travelled west from Nicaea and entered Smyrna, 
the centre of the pirate kingdom of the Turkish warlord Chaka. By this time, Chaka was dead, possibly an earlier intrigue of Kilik Arslan's, and his son, also the Sultana's brother, was one round to the opinion that to hold his lands in the face of Alexius's mercenaries, the prince's crusade, would be a fatal folly. Thus persuaded, especially with news of Nicaea's fall, the Lord of Smyrna and his sister vanished into what remained of Kilik Arslan's Anatolian kingdom. Alexius Komnenos, victorious, spent the remainder of the 1090s hoovering up the fractured territories which Chaka had so recently held in contempt of his authority. Another satisfying conclusion for Alexius, then, not least because he wouldn't have to convince the Crusaders to make a time-consuming detour down Asia Minor's Aegean coastline. Alexius did, however, want to make his position clear on further developments in the Crusade. His knowledge of the geography and political realities of the journey to Jerusalem would be useful to the Crusaders, and he knew this. He also wanted the Crusaders to remember who was in charge. Taking a lead, the last time he would do so entirely effectively, Alexius invited the Crusaders' leaders to meet him at his camp at Peleconum on the 22nd of June. Aside from Stephen of Blois and the ever uncooperative Raymond of Toulouse, the Crusades' leaders did so. Both Stephen and Raymond claimed to be needed to defend the Crusader camp. So close to Turkish territory, with Kilik Arslan still at large, this was not an entirely unreasonable case. Stephen of Blois, whose relationship with Alexius seems otherwise to have been relatively amicable, did not have any obvious ulterior motive. The same, of course, cannot be said with any confidence of Raymond of Toulouse. Alexius demanded the leaders at Peleconum to restate their oaths, and asked for fresh oaths from those more junior members who had slipped through the net last time around, notably Baldwin of Boulogne and Bohemond of Taranto's younger brother, Tancred. Other useful things were also discussed and agreed at Peleconum. Alexius's knowledge came to the fore, for he reminded the Crusaders that the Armenians in eastern Anatolia could be natural allies against the Turks, and he cautioned that the great fortress city of Antioch should be taken by the Crusaders before they advanced towards Jerusalem. Antioch had guarded Byzantium's southeastern flank for generations, and had only fallen into Turkish hands as recently as 1085. Even Alexius's advice to the Crusaders to send emissaries to the Fatimid Caliphate in Egypt was sound enough at the time that the advice was given. It was the Fatimids' subsequent actions, their seizure of Jerusalem from the Seljuks early in 1099, that made the situation between them and the First Crusade more complicated. Peleconum, then, decided Antioch as the next target for the Crusade. The first challenge was how to reach the city, Hundreds of miles of Kilik Arslan's domain still lay before them, and the Sultan, though heavily bruised by the loss of Nicaea, was by no means a spent force. Beyond Kilik Arslan's borders lay the great Seljuk Sultanate, still covering a vast area from Afghanistan to Syria, and the eastern borders of modern-day Egypt. Behind the scenes, this, the main Seljuk patrimony, was fragmenting under the Sultan Barkiaruk, but this was not in a manner obvious to the Crusaders in central Anatolia. To march towards it, and through it, looked a daunting task ahead of them. 
The Crusaders concurred with Alexius's advice to avoid both the coast road and the traditional pilgrim route past Ankyra, modern-day Ankara, on account of the large number of ambush-friendly ravines that the Turks could exploit. Instead, they opted to take a route across the Anatolian plateau, past the former Roman fort of Dorylaeum, and they did so in two distinct formations. The first of these was commanded by Bohemond of Taranto and Robert of Normandy. Driven by the same strategic thinking that later led Napoleon Bonaparte to develop the famous corps structure in the Grand Armée, the Crusades' leaders did not want to exhaust the limited food sources that lay on the route across Anatolia by heavily concentrating their forces. Dividing into these two smaller blocks, however, presented their Muslim opponents with opportunities of their own. As mentioned, though defeated, Kilik Arslan was by no means broken. His army remained in the field. Moreover, his truce with the Emir Danishmend had morphed into a full-blown alliance. Danishmend was unusual among Turkish princes in having the foresight to lay aside petty differences with his neighbours in the wake of the First Crusade. He understood the deadly nature that this force posed to autonomous princes such as himself. It is fitting, given this approach, that Danishmen's territory around the eastern Turkish city of Sivas was almost untouched by the crusading hosts. His coordination with Kilik Arslan, however, though well conceived, was nonetheless not to bring them victory at the eventual Battle of Dorylaeum. The Battle of Dorylaeum, bizarrely enough, most likely took place 45 miles to the north of the Dorylaeum fortress complex, near the modern town of Bozayuk, in a wide valley flanked by a marsh. Kilik Arslan and Danishmend, anticipating the Crusaders' arrival, deployed their forces south of the marsh, obscured by a sharp cliff and a bend in the ravine. Their goal, a time-honoured ambush strategy, would be sprung on the vanguard of the force, hopefully destroying it before the second half of the Prince's Crusade could arrive to their rescue. Danishmend and Kilikarslan were confident that their own forces could take on the contingent commanded by Bohemond and Robert of Normandy. But they also knew their limitations. Their combined forces, whilst strong, could not take on the whole Prince's Crusade and win. The opportunity presented before them had to be taken. It was now or never. The battlefield, they hoped, was nearly perfect for their intended plan to play out. Cliffs obscured the positions of their soldiers from the approaching Christians. The heavily armoured Crusader knights might get bogged down in the marsh. Kilik Arslan had also learned his lesson from Nicaea. In this ravine, there was plenty of room for manoeuvre. He was determined that his forces would not, once again, be caught in a trap of their own making. On the 1st of July 1097, battle was joined. Dawn broke and with it the Crusader vanguard skirted the marsh, reaching the promised crossroads in the ravine. Danishmend and Kilik Arslan sprung their ambush, with thousands of fast-moving horse archers emerging from their positions, howling and shouting, God is great! The sky was soon thick with arrows pouring from detachments of Turkish cavalry as they approached the Christians from the south and east. The barrage was relentless, Barbed arrowheads plunged repeatedly into the Crusader forces as they scrambled for a better position. Soldiers panicked, 
non-combatants and the lightly armoured rushing for their protection. Stragglers were cut down by the fast-moving Turkish horse. It is to their great credit that Bohemond and Robert of Normandy, both seasoned warriors, rose so quickly to the occasion. Taken by surprise, nonetheless they adapted quickly, rallying their men and creating a protective cordon around the spare horses and baggage animals that had survived the Turks' initial attack. Dismounted knights stood shoulder to shoulder with the foot soldiers, combining large shields and heavy armour in an effort to minimise casualties, and to ward off the Turks from coming too close to the non-combatants and animals that they were protecting. Whilst this strategy worked well enough for those who were in the right place at the right time, it is fair to say that any stragglers, and those who tried to help them, largely met with a messy end. Hundreds were massacred by nimble Turkish horsemen, seizing their opportunity with sword, lance or bow. From within their protective cordon, Bohemond, Robert and their soldiers waited. They had to endure the onslaught until the second half of the crusade arrived. Every effort was made to bolster the morale and condition of the front line. Priests passed regularly behind the shields of their protectors, shouting encouragement and exhorting them to stand firm against the Turkish arrows. Women in the camp brought food and water to the men at regular intervals. The Iron Cordon, though strategically effective, did not present every individual crusader with invulnerability. Men on the front ranks died in their dozens, pierced by lucky or well-placed Turkish arrows. A brave knight by the name of Robert of Paris was recorded as slain by many arrows when he ventured from the shield wall to protect unarmed peasants fleeing the Turks and seeking sanctuary. At one point in the battle, Turkish horsemen even forced a gap in the shield wall itself, pouring in and killing men, women and children alike in their wake. The soft underbelly of the Crusader cordon was soon closed off to the Turks by determined Crusader resistance, but not before dozens of non-combatants had fallen. From a safe distance, safe at least for them, Turkish horse archers circled the Crusaders, pouring arrows into their ranks in their multitudes. Kinnik Arslan and Danishmend must have anticipated the arrival of reinforcements, eventually. What surprised them was their speed and the direction whence they arrived. Bohemond, thinking on his feet, had sent messengers to Adamar of Lepuy almost as soon as the Turks were spotted. The veteran bishop, himself no stranger to military strategy, directed Godfrey and Raymond to lead two distinct forces in their defence. Godfrey, arriving first, skirted around the north of the Crusader force to provide a second front, driving the Turks away from the ravine by which they had entered the battlefield. This first force, significant and made up in large part by mounted knights, caused the Turkish leaders significant alarm. They began to sound an ordered retreat, dismayed that their plan had not worked as intended, but resolving to fight another day. Here, the genius of Adamar's strategy revealed itself, for Raymond, with his third force, had slipped past, or possibly through the marsh, and had hooked round to attack the Turks in their rear, from the south. It is possible, in fact quite likely, that Adamar had adopted an, envelop an envelopment strategy acquired from his reading of classical tactical manuals. 
Whatever the reasoning for his strategy, it was a staggering success. The Turks ordered retreat quickly turned into a panicked rout. Both Turkish leaders abandoned their respective baggage trains, Danish men riding straight back to his mountain fastness at Sivas. He did not challenge the Crusaders again until after Jerusalem had fallen in 1099. Kilik Arslan, his army severely damaged and his reputation battered, slunk into the eastern extremities of his embattled sultanate. The Crusaders gorged themselves with Turkish treasure and consoled themselves about their dead. The latter point is important. The Crusaders had undeniably pulled off one of the great tactical triumphs of the 11th century. The Battle of Dorylaeum was a crushing victory, but Crusader casualties were high. Thomas Asbridge estimates around 4,000 Crusaders perished compared to just 3,000 Turks, the latter being largely killed off as a result of the rout following Raymond's arrival. Christian casualties, then, were just shy of 10% of the overall crusading force, showing again the potential unsustainability of the expedition and its ability to achieve its goals. However, their first set of enemies had been decisively defeated. If Kilik Arslan's army had not been wiped out, its morale and cohesion was decisively broken. The Turks at Dorylaeum would think twice before challenging the Crusaders again. The alliance of Kilik Arslan and Danishmend, a potentially fearsome combination of united and intelligent men, had been smashed by the anvil of Crusader power. The road to Antioch, more or less, lay open. In our next episode, released in a fortnight's time, we will see the Crusaded forces traverse it, making friends, crushing pockets of resistance, and, for the first time, falling out amongst themselves. Thanks again for joining me and listening to Tink's Medieval Times. Our next episode of Crusades O'Clock will take the Prince's Crusade to the mighty fortress of Antioch. The following episode will see great cities in the Middle East fall to Crusader hands, and the mighty armies of the Seljuk Turks break against Crusader fervour. This is a spectacle not to be missed. Thank you for your time. If you have any questions, please get in touch at tinksmedievaltimes at gmail.com. And in the meantime, I hope you have a smashing day.